Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host, Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. Um, And you know, Eric, as I've brought up a number of times, I live alone. You've mentioned that, yeah. I have mentioned that. Apparently as a consequence... You know, I just find, find myself sitting and uh, staring at the ceiling and, and random thoughts pop into my head from time to time. And the other night, I suddenly remembered how at the start of the baseball season, we talked very briefly at some point in the podcast. I can't even remember how it came up, but we talked very briefly about how outfielder and professional traitor Bryce Harper <laughs> was or was not already being booed by Philadelphia fans like one or two games into his Phillies career. And I, I, I remember us briefly having this conversation. And, mm-hmm. and you, you lied and claimed that he wasn't and that Philadelphia fans <laughs> wouldn't do that. But anyway, <laughs> it got me to wondering whether they were cheering or booing him now. So I decided to look um, uh, for a Phillies game. Um, but it's, <laughs> oh, it's, a bit, it's a bit weird, this. So it turns out, this is a funny thing. It turns out they're not actually playing again until 2020, which is um, really weird because the Washington Nationals, uh, the team that Bryce Harper betrayed, um, uh, are actually playing on Monday and are, in fact, just two games from reaching the World Series. So obviously, this strikes me as being objectively a hilarious situation. So um, anyway, I'm just... You know, just anyway, that random thought that just popped into my head was how you're feeling about the whole Bryce Harper to, to Philly situation these days. How's that, uh, how's that working out for you? Mm. you? Feeling good about yourself? Yeah, pretty good. <laughs> feeling, feeling, <laughs> feeling satisfied with that little ribbing you just gave me there? Yeah, that was a pretty good one. Yeah. This, is, this is about the first time I've ever wished you would just uh, talk, brought up soccer instead. <laughs> you know, I That's love right. talking about soccer. I have no interest in baseball. Never liked that sport one bit. Let's talk soccer. Um, now, but in all seriousness, I will say, I'm happy for the Nats and their fans, and I, I don't really feel a deep hatred uh, for for either them or the Braves these days, even even though they're division rivals of the Phillies for some reason. Uh, you know, the Mets I still hate because they're New York, but uh, the other ones, yeah, it's fine. If they reach the World Series and are playing the Yankees, I will definitely root for the Nats because well, you know, what am I going to do? Root for the Yankees? I'm not a monster. Um, <laughs> but I will say this in response to all of your uh, Bryce Harper talk. He was just fine this season. He was nowhere close to MVP caliber. He probably mm. wasn't worth what the Phillies are paying him. But he put up perfectly solid numbers across the board. And um, put simply, he wasn't the problem. The Phillies pitching was a disaster this season. Uh, the Nats, your Nats, uh, they are your Nats, right? Yeah, yeah oh, I have a stake. Yeah. Okay, absolutely. good. Yeah. Um, so they have excellent pitching. Uh, and so that's why the Phillies finished 500 and are not currently scheduled to play until 2020. And the Nats uh, are nearing a possible World Series appearance. And I I just feel like Bryce Harper wasn't actually going to change either team's fortunes this season a whole lot. Um, But I'm still very happy to have uh, Bryce Harper in Philadelphia in the years ahead. I believe uh, he signed through his age 58 season, if I've got that right. (laughs) I tell you, a guy's team wins its first ever playoff series. And I tell you, it's amazing. Yeah, he's off. All right, well, look, so as is already immediately obvious, we do have a little bit of everything on the podcast this week. Uh, although I do have to give you a little bit of advance warning, Eric. Notwithstanding the joy that I derived from the jab at the Phillies, I am mm. a bit cranky. I'm a bit cranky today. Mm, okay. I did warn you a few days ago that I might be building up to a bit of a crank. Mm-hmm. And I still am cranky. I think I've actually settled into a state of permanent old man crankiness, which I think is known as... <laughs> Detloffia. Ah, yes. <laughs> so there you go. It's come full circle, mate. Your podcasting career. You know, uh, you know yeah. I, eternally uh, grumbling old man on the other side. I, I, fin- I finally stopped podcasting with Detloff, and here I am kind of podcasting with Detloff anyway. There you go. And exactly. I actually, uh, coincidentally enough, uh, I will actually be podcasting with Detloff today as I'll be appearing on his Ringside Seat podcast. But uh, <laughs> but uh, we don't need to plug other podcasts on this podcast, nah, so, right. as you were saying. That's just going to make me crankier now. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> so anyway, part of the reason I'm cranky is there's so much to be cranky about. Right. God damn it. In the world at large. And, of course, always in boxing. Oh, boxing. Um, And we will touch upon some of those things in today's episode. But there are also good things to talk about. We have a particular emphasis on Alexander's this week. Uh, We will be looking ahead to this Friday's light heavyweight championship clash between Alexander Vozdyk and Artur Perturbiev. And we'll look back on Alexander Usyk's heavyweight debut that took place on Saturday night. 
Uh, and non-Alexander-related stuff, we will also take a dip into the old mailbag. Uh, that'll give us a chance to revisit some recent disputed decisions in major fights. But in an unusual just, and this is probably also contributing to my crankiness because I don't like change, Eric, and we've changed things up. And yes. I just, I'm, it, no good can come of this. But we're going to start this week where we typically finish with a run through the outside the ring news of the week. Uh, and the reason we're doing that actually um, is we wanted to get some of the more serious business out of the way first. Now there is some serious business here. Uh, we start uh, with Errol Spence Jr., the undefeated welterweight star who, uh, as I'm sure everyone listening has heard by now, was involved in a single car accident in Dallas early Thursday morning uh, after some extremely scary initial reports, uh, talk of critical condition. Um, we got word that, he, in fact, suffered no major injuries, just some facial lacerations and, and, and broken teeth. And if you saw a video of the crash that made its way around the Internet uh, sort of midday-ish on Thursday that was taken from a surveillance camera at a store across the street, how he suffered no major injuries is, is just astonishing. Um, his Ferrari cartwheeled across the road, uh, but ejected Spence before it did so. Um, he was reportedly not wearing a seatbelt, um, which is normally a massively... It is a massively irresponsible thing to do, yes. but in this case, ironically, may have saved his life. Um, I actually was informed by a knowledgeable source that, as far as everyone could figure out, when he was ejected, he initially literally landed on his feet wow. before then sort of tumbling uh, forward, obviously, onto his face and crashing uh, along the street. Um, the Dallas Police Department said he was, quote, traveling at a high rate of speed. Um, but whereas there were some rumors of alcohol being involved, I think the initial uh, statement said something like there might be a DWI investigation. I can't remember. Um, no such official statement has yet been made by police. Uh, they just said, quote, the cause of the accident is undetermined at this time. And that's how it stands as we record this on Sunday evening. Safe to say, though, Eric, the, I mean, the big take home is that when we first texted each other in the immediate aftermath of the first news reports, we I think we both assumed that we were going to be reporting on some extraordinarily dire uh, news indeed, uh, that this was going to be a far more somber news story than it has somehow miraculously turned out to be. Yeah, uh, the, the initial reports that I saw came over Twitter with still photos of a crumpled Ferrari and a lot of pray for Errol Spence in people's tweets. Um, some of them did immediately note not believed to be life-threatening, or mm. I saw the words in stable condition. Um, but my initial reaction was to assume, based on the little that we thought we knew, that it was, if not life-threatening, then career-threatening at least. Um, to hear he's basically fine physically, other than some cosmetic damage, especially after seeing that surveillance video, God. I mean, wow. I, I know you're not generally uh, supposed to avoid talking politics and religion, right? Those are those are the two <laughs> topics that people say, play it safe, don't even start. Uh, well, we've broken the politics rule a tiny bit on this right. podcast, but only a tiny bit. Um, I'm going to break the religion rule. Uh, I decided a long time ago that I lean pretty heavily toward not believing in God. I, I practice Judaism for social and cultural reasons, and for the jokes, of course, like Tim Watley. <laughs> um, but I I'm not all in on the religious aspects, but you know, this Errol Spence thing, walking away from that crash, uh, he might be dead if he'd been wearing a seatbelt. Instead, he goes flying and, as you said, lands on his feet. It's a little harder for me to totally discount some higher power's existence than it was last week. Uh, certainly, Errol Spence ought to be a believer right now. Uh, whether this was drunk driving or not, it was at the very least reckless driving, and Errol Spence is a lucky, lucky man if all the things we are being told about his physical health are true. Um, so, yeah, it, it seems he's pretty much okay, and it would be hard to talk about this story from a boxing perspective if Spence's condition was more serious. But because it appears he has indeed escaped not just life-threatening injuries, but also career-threatening injuries, I think it's okay to talk about the boxing implications and to note some of the outstanding fighters of the past who haven't been so lucky. Uh, Salvador Sanchez is the most famous mm. example of a fighter who died in a car crash and was cut down in his prime. More recently, Diego Corrales, nearing the end of his boxing career, died in a motorcycle accident, and Paul Williams, uh, who was still close to his prime at the time, was paralyzed in a motorcycle crash. So Spence was lucky, uh, and, and we as boxing fans are too. This might be a weird question, 
But do you think Spence and his people being reminded of how quickly it all can end, that that could possibly land us the Spence-Crawford fight any sooner? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know Errol Wright. I've never met him that I'm aware of. I, and I don't don't know anything about the kind of person that he is and how he might respond to this. Um, I mean, I hope the lesson that he takes from this isn't, holy crap, I'm immortal. I can right. do anything I want. <laughs> right. Um, uh, I, I really don't know. And I hope he, you know, he truly does realize how extraordinarily lucky he, he was. And yeah, and that life is short. And boy, you better you better strike while the iron is hot because uh, you just never know. Um, and the, the other thing that popped into my mind, who knows, right? If he there, sees the tweets and the messages from the boxing community, including from Terence Crawford, mm-hmm. um, especially when we nobody knew how bad his condition was and everyone assumed the worst not unreasonably um you know maybe there'll be this sense of yeah you know what we are we talk back and forth and and whatever but we are all in this business together and we do all need each other and the thing to do is to sort of you know take a take advantage of each other and give each other opportunities it's one of the peculiarities of boxing that the best way to show your gratitude towards someone and his friendship for them is to agree to punch him in the face. But, <laughs> right. but, but, such, but there it is. So, so I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I would hope so that he would think, and, and yes, like you said, it seems like a very cavalier thing to talk about it from a boxing perspective, but we're doing it because it does look as if everything's going to be just fine. Um, yeah, you would hope that he'd say, yeah, you know what? Life is short and, and anything can get in the way. And, um, you know, I, I should try and make this happen uh, touching on what you just said um i do hope that it's sort of a wake-up call generally you know mm-hmm. like you said, whatever turns out to be the case in, in terms of contributory factors uh, it was at, at best reckless driving like you mm-hmm. said he was driving a dangerously powerful sports car apparently at speed um he's not only fortunate not to have killed or severely injured himself he's exceptionally fortunate not to have injured or killed anyone else mm-hmm. um that same camera footage showed that there were a couple of other cars in the vicinity, like right afterward. If the timing had been different, this whole scenario, even if he'd been fine, could have been a lot, 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 lot worse. Um, you know, boxing is an incredibly dangerous sport, but those who engage in it do so willingly, um, you know, doing the kind of activity that runs the risk of injuring or, or killing innocent people or they're just going about their business is a different thing entirely. So, so I hope that it's a wake-up call generally. Um, but look, yeah, we're only having this conversation because – somehow it appears that he got away and uh, with relatively minor injuries and we do wish him well and we do hope that his recovery is swift and complete as it appears it might be absolutely all right well in an even more upsetting piece of news uh and we promise the podcast will for the most part get sunnier after this uh cranky kieran notwithstanding uh but we 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 do have another downer here uh james ali bashir the trainer of ivana habazin who was attacked from behind at the weigh-in for habazin's scheduled fight with clarissa shields was released from the hospital but then readmitted on monday and diagnosed with bleeding on his brain. So an awful story gets considerably more awful. Uh, Kieran, we discussed this on last week's show. I think this additional news only confirms that Habazine was absolutely correct to pull out of the fight. Not that there was a whole lot of debate about that anyway. Uh, Anything else to add at this point? No, a great deal. Other than that, thank God for for modern medicine and modern medical technology. As I understand the way things played out, uh, according to, you know, Ivana's tweet, he didn't go back to the hospital with a brain bleed because he had symptoms. But my understanding is that he was called in by the hospital, right, who noticed the bleed on scans, and, mm. and then they took care of it. If I understand that correctly, that, that's sort of how she, she put it in her tweet, which is amazing. I mean, so if that is the case, then perhaps one, you have to assume once upon a time he would have just continued blissfully unaware until he dropped dead. Um, uh, Mark Taffet. Uh, Claressa's manager and our former HBO colleague um, uh, did release a statement saying that he'd talked to Bashir and Bashir has now been released again and is at home resting. Um, But yeah, I guess the only thing to add, and this shouldn't be a hot take, shouldn't need to be said, but punching people in the head is like super dangerous. Um, (laughs) The people we watch do it over and over are professionals who know what they're doing and they have gloves on and they have canvas to fall onto. Knocking people over, especially from behind, so that their heads hit solid floors is profoundly freaking stupid. Do not do it. Um, You know, and we talked last week about how so often 
without wanting to, to assign any blame to, to what happened, how often the silliness and the ugliness around boxing always sort of comes from entourages. It's so rarely the boxers themselves. Uh, I did see this interesting interview uh, from uh, the Buddy McGurk. Uh, the Hall of Fame trainer gave mm-hmm. to World Boxing News. And he said that, you know, in the light of this, you know, one thing that, that boxing should do is just limit the size of these entourages at weigh-ins and things like that. Um, as we discussed, and again, not trying to say who is to blame or anything like that, but it all sort of began that the the, the touch paper was lit with Bashir getting into it on stage with Shield's sister. And uh, McGurk said... The way in, the entourage should stay in the crowd with everybody else. They have no reason, the entourage, to be on the podium, none whatsoever. Um, everybody's got to come to the stage with 20 guys. But one mm. thing is this. you got 20 guys on stage with you, but when the bell rings, they ain't going to be there for you. Indeed. Um, again, that's not to say that anyone in Shields' team was involved or responsible. But the more folks there are, and as we explained, the greater the different wheels and, and rings of entourage are, the greater the likelihood of flashpoints that kicks all this nonsense off. Just if people would just behave, God's yep. sake. Yep, I, I agree with uh, with Buddy's take on that one for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd like to be able to say that that's it for the sad hospital-based segment of the podcast. It isn't quite... Um, there's still, still got some more. Frick- this is a miserable freaking podcast. Like, I'm you, <laughs> we got some good bits. Karen, we got some good bits, but there he is. Um, but we are going to spread the bad news out a little bit. Uh, but so first, let's turn our attention to more conventional news. Uh, smiley face. Uh, we will kick that <laughs> off with a card just added to the Showtime boxing calendar. Double smiley face on December seventh, Barclays Center in Brooklyn. Unbeaten middleweight Jamal Charlo returns to our action meeting Irishman Dennis Hogan, who is best known for his disputed decision lost to Jaime Munguia in April. Um, more information, including undercard bouts to come. Uh, we also have a change, another change, the October 26th Showtime boxing card, uh, which already saw Ericsson Lubin's scheduled main event opponent, Terrell Gaucher, drop out with an injury and Nathaniel Gallimore replace him. Uh, now we have a change to the opening bout of the triple header. It was supposed to be Roshi Warren against Emmanuel Rodriguez in a meeting of world-class little guys, but Warren suffered a hand injury. So I said we get to see the big boys. Uh, unbeaten heavyweight prospect, Efia Jagba, I love this guy, uh, returns to Showtime and takes on Jack Mulawai. Uh Eric... An upgrade, a downgrade, a lateral move. Um, obviously, we will say a lot more about Charlo Hogan, uh, but any initial thoughts two months out? Uh, all I'll say about Charlo Hogan for now is that I guess Hogan provides something of a measuring stick between Charlo and Munguia, uh, and I suspect that measurement will flatter Charlo. Um, yeah. I believe he's a level above Munguia and in turn a level above Hogan. Um, also, uh, nice job there, Stephen Espinoza, scheduling a Showtime Championship boxing card the same night as my daughter's bat mitzvah. Next time, check with me first, dude. Jeez, some people. Um, anyway, uh, the move from the Rashi Warren fight to the FIA Jagba fight, it's different. That's for sure. Uh, the, yeah. These fights couldn't be much more opposite going from world-class bantamweights uh, in a fight without a clear A-side to a heavyweight prospect in a fight he's supposed to win convincingly. I like either fight as a show opener, to be honest. Uh they just bring very different qualities to the table with a uh, Jagba versus Mulawai. We're expecting more of a showcase than a fight. Right. And as long as we have the right expectations, then it's a fight I'm very much looking forward to because a Jagba is an exciting, undefeated knockout puncher. And I'm eager to see him every time he steps into the yep. ring. Um, so it's not so much better or worse than Warren Rodriguez. It's just a different form of entertainment. It's a it's a fun three minute pop rock song by Green Day instead of like a <laughs> seven minute Radiohead song. Um, but uh, the, I the, I channeled my inner uh, Larry Merchant for that uh, to 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 stretch and uh, go with that metaphor. Not that he would have chosen that particular. I metaphor. was gonna say more the style of the metaphor. Okay. okay. Anyway, uh, I will say this. I will never complain about F.A. Ajagba being added to a broadcast. That's always a good thing. Um, Speaking of heavyweights and changes to the plan for October 26th fight cards, we noted last week that Joseph Parker had withdrawn from his scheduled fight in London with Derek Chisora. Well, Chisora now has a replacement opponent, and it's none other than David Price. Price has been the butt of a joke or two on this podcast, but... He is coming off an upset win over Dave the White Rhino Allen, his best win in some seven years. So what do you think, Kieran? Uh, Could Price pull in Andy Ruiz and and manage the upset win as a late replacement? Or is this just a one-way ticket back to his familiar position stretched out on the canvas? I will say 
that I do still, there's a part of me, the romantic in me, the, well, the deeply buried romantic in me, <laughs> still holds out hope that somehow, at some point, David Price will put it all together and will be able to fight for the heavyweight championship of the world, perhaps ideally on Showtime at Anfield, the home of Liverpool Football Club, because he is a Liverpool Football Club fan, and that I'd somehow be able to go to the greatest stadium on earth that is the home ground of the greatest soccer club on earth to watch David Price um, you know, fight for the heavyweight championship. But then I wake up. <laughs> right. So, but anyway, because, <laughs> yes, indeed. Because, look, Derek Chisora is no David Allen, or rather David Allen is no Derek Chisora. Um, so, okay, if we're going to find a case for David Price here. Chisora is a slightly shorter heavyweight. He's like 6'1"-ish, 6'2". Um, he sort of needs to come up under his opponent's punches. You could make the argument that if Price can stick to that jab like he did against Allen, that he can pull off an upset that stylistically it might work. But that said, look, he is stepping in as a late replacement, which is really ideal. Um, and I wonder a little bit about his mindset, apart from all the other evidence that we've seen, um, just to try and find an, an, an original look at it. Um, I was reading a piece by a, a British boxing writer, Danny Flexen, who used to write for Boxing News, and I write yeah. the seconds out. And, and he said, you know, why, he wrote a piece why he was very surprised that Price had taken this. And, and he said that apparently, like in interviews that he's done with him lately, Price has said specifically he would only take fights in which he was the favorite. Um, which doesn't sound like he's tremendously confident of his abilities. Um, but, you know, he, and of course, he won't be the favorite here. But he did yeah. also say, that, say to Danny that if he were to take a fight in which he weren't the favorite, he'd want to get as much money as the, the guy who was the favorite. So essentially, that suggests that his mindset is, I only want fights that I should win or I want to get paid a lot to lose. <laughs> right. So that doesn't suggest he's going into any of this with a great deal of confidence. Look, that said... There's a lot less pressure on him than on Chisora, really, right? I mean, he cannot afford to lose to, to David Price, but I right. do suspect that Del Boy will have more than enough to win that fight by stoppage. Yeah, I don't think your soccer stadium dream is coming true. It's you not, you know that. Yeah. I do know that, yeah. but, uh, but there you go. Uh, another quick piece of Showtime Boxing News. Um, the network that brings you this podcast officially announced recently a new documentary that I'm very much looking forward to, actually, uh, Pariah. The Lives and Deaths of Sonny Liston, premiering Friday, November 15th at 9 p.m. Eastern and Pacific. We will have much more to say about that over the next few weeks. Uh, and we actually plan to speak to some of the people behind it and perhaps some major figures in boxing who knew Sonny Liston. That's definitely something to look forward to, I think. Indeed. I'm, I'm really looking forward to both watching the documentary and uh, diving into it on the podcast here in the weeks ahead. Um, and speaking of things I am looking forward to, or at least things I thought I was looking forward to, I said last week that Tyson Fury versus Braun Strowman in a WWE match sounded like a lot of fun. Well, we're getting it, and we're getting it fairly soon. Halloween night, October 31st. But it's happening in Saudi Arabia, which, uh, well, we've discussed previously how we feel about the leadership there and combat sports promoters selling out and bringing their product there. So that sucks out a lot if not all, of my enthusiasm mm. for Tyson Fury in the world of wrestling. I'm not sure if you had any enthusiasm in the first place, but uh, safe to assume this isn't helping? Yeah, I, I had actually been starting to quite enjoy all of this. Um, you know, I, I must admit, I didn't think they would actually escalate it into an in-ring match, uh, certainly not so so soon. Um, uh, but, you know, like you said last week, it's... He's clearly a natural, and in hindsight, it's ridiculous to never have pictured him, pictured him in, in WWE. And I was mm. definitely starting to enjoy it. Um, and then came the whole Saudi angle. Um, interesting. Eddie Hearn was complaining over the weekend that he was pilloried for taking uh, Joshua Ruiz there, and that there hasn't been anything like the same level of outrage over this. Um, I don't know if that or is or is not true, the second part, whether there's the similar level of outrage. I guess on a personal level, it got me less, like, outrage because i'm just not invested in this mm. um I, i've been finding it fun but i wasn't going to buy the pay-per-view anyway um i don't have like a professional reason to watch it but now i am completely turned off by it and now i'm not entertained by it and now i'm not going to pay any attention to it at all it is a year and a week since jamal khashoggi was murdered and hacked to pieces and nobody gives a rat's ass um and you know i guess that you know there's always the risk that 
the first time something like this happened is incites fury. The second time, you know, righteous anger. The third time, mumbling. And by the fourth or fifth times, everybody's just numb to it, and it just becomes a thing. And um, that's well, that's how they win, isn't it? Um, I will note that it does seem to me that the UK sports media does a pretty good job of at least bringing up the issues with Saudi Arabia every time they talk about that. I've noticed they've they've already started doing that. They're not really pushing it necessarily, but they are at least bringing it up. But yeah, it's it's disgusting. I can't even imagine how the Khashoggi family must feel about it or this Saudi normalization or or the citizens of Yemen or, you know, women, um, to name right. but a few. But I know we keep... You know what? I was going to say we keep beating this horse and you know what? We should. We should yeah. let's not stop doing it because sure. that is, like I said, how they win. Yeah, and, and I think... Uh, that the fact that the uh, Ruiz-Joshua rematch, that the outrage level for that was higher than the outrage for this is, well, it's partially due to, as you said, just sort of the diminishing returns of outrage, the more that uh, people keep going back there. Uh, but also specifically with WWE, I think the outrage against WWE going to Saudi Arabia peaked a while back when right. they first went there. And I think John <clears throat> Cena boycotted it and there was a whole discussion. Oh, did he? Then. I didn't know that. Oh, I okay. think. I, I hope I'm not getting my facts mixed up. He either boycotted or spoke out against it, but went through with it anyway. But I think it was the former. But oh, okay. whatever the case, I think that that's also part of the reason there's mm. less outrage here is that WWE has kind of gone through the outrage cycle to an extent uh, on Got this you. topic. But okay, we bridge the gap from our news segment to our fight recap segment uh, with some news directly related to the biggest fight of this past weekend. Uh, Oleksandr Usyk made his heavyweight debut on Saturday night in Chicago, but the opponent was not who we talked about last week as Tyrone Spong was removed from the fight when he failed his VADA test. We should note that after two samples tested positive for clomiphene, Spong took a third test that came up clean, but it was too late. He'd already been replaced in the fight by a heavyweight that I frankly haven't thought about in years, didn't know he was still active, uh, Chaz Witherspoon, the second cousin of former heavyweight belt holder Tim Witherspoon. Uh, None of that in terms of who the opponent is, was, who it ended up being. None of that is really all that important if you view this as a one-man show for Usyk in front of some adoring fans and an audience eager to see how he looks as a heavyweight. And that's what it turned out to be. Usyk dominated for seven rounds without necessarily hurting Witherspoon. Uh, Mm. Chaz only had so much stamina as a late replacement, and he seemed perfectly content to let the ref and his own corner agree to stop the fight after the seventh round. Kieran, how did Usyk look to you at 215 pounds? And did we learn anything from this performance about his capability as a heavyweight? Yeah, I'm not sure that we were able to learn a very great deal about him that we didn't already know or suspect i mean as you said he weighed 215 which isn't an enormous amount more than the cruiserweight limit and probably you know weighed much the same in the ring on saturday night as he normally does um it it was in in many respects it was a typical Usyk fight taking a couple of rounds to get in the groove and figure out his opponent becoming steadily more comfortable and letting his hands go and his feet move with ever greater abandon and then ultimately prevailing inside the distance i i think we saw Hints of some of the advantages he will have against some heavyweights in that they will simply be too ponderous to react to him. Usyk is going to present challenges that most heavyweights won't have had to deal with before. You know, not just his hand speed, but his footwork specifically and his angles, the way he can move in and out and side to side and the number of punches he throws. Um, But that's certainly going to work well against relatively immobile opponents like Witherspoon. And, and, you know, and I think you sort of touched on that. I don't think we can give Witherspoon too much grief for his performance. He's he's been largely inactive. And and like you said, he came in at the last minute. Um, Mm. um, But what I don't think this fight told us at all was how well he would fare against an elite heavyweight or a heavyweight who's closer to the elite. That's not his fault. Like mm. Carlos Takam was his originally scheduled opponent. He would have been a great measuring stick as a way to start in the heavyweight division. Um, he's not by any means elite, but he's the kind of guy who's gone up against elite fighters and, and we'd have a, 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 and is far closer to his prime than, than his Witherspoon. Um, you know, he would have provided a much better gauge. Um, but, you know, did I watch that? I looked at that and I thought, I don't even know how this works against a Derek Chisora or Dylan White, let alone the big the big four. How does he fare against a guy like Anthony Joshua, who is so much bigger than him, but is solidly bigger than him and who can also box? Or a guy like Wilder. Look, he was a little bit 
marked up against Chaz Witherspoon at the end of that fight. Mm-hmm. If Deontay Wilder hits him clean with one of those punches, what's going to happen to him then? Um, or Andy Ruiz, he's a guy who's not going to be able to match his footwork, but could probably match his hand speed and, and, and certainly going to be able to hit heavier. Or, you know, Tyson Fury, who has his own unique skill set that kind of mirrors Usyk's, you know, whereas Usyk is, is, is much more um, slick with his offense than most heavyweights. Fury is slick in his defense in the way that very few heavyweights are. Um, so, you know, I'd like to see him move up the ladder so he and we can see. I'd like him to actually try again to make the Takam fight. But if I understand correctly, I guess Klimas and his team have ensured he has the number one ranking at heavyweight for one of the sanctioning body belts, one that's currently held by Ruiz. So I guess it's conceivable we see him up against the Ruiz-Joshua winner very soon. It seems like it may be the chance, may be, unless one of those guys gives up that belt, whoever wins in December. Um that the way that we find out whether he might cope against Ruiz or Joshua is when we see him in the <laughs> ring against Ruiz or Joshua. So right. I, I don't know. Uh, you know, maybe they've made the calculation that they've, they're fully aware that one heavyweight punch can change everything. So uh, they're, they're presumably making the, the calculation that it's better that that comes from Anthony Joshua and Andy Ruiz or Andy Ruiz rather than Carlos de Cam. So uh, I don't know. I mean, guy's got stones if he wants to go straight in there. And he said, you know, uh, uh, to the media afterwards, he was the fight Fury and Joshua and and Wilder all in one year. So yeah, you know, can't blame the guy. Can't can't accuse the guy of shirking a challenge. That's for sure. Right. You mentioned uh, that he he was a little bit marked up uh, from Chaz Witherspoon's punches. That was from only 21 punches that landed, according to the punch oh, stats. Yeah. Uh, just remarkable. You know what it says about uh, how non-competitive the fight was and how good Usyk's defense is and all that. But also, yeah, if he was getting marked up from just 21 punches from Chaz Witherspoon, I suppose that's a little troubling. I thought Usyk fought well, not spectacularly, but it was also clear he was looking to get some rounds in. Uh, Hmm. And by around the sixth round, he'd gotten the work he wanted and he stepped it up a little and they stopped the fight shortly thereafter. It's hard for me to be critical of anything we saw from Usyk, but... As you said, it's hard to extrapolate from this anything meaningful about how he'll do against elite heavyweights. Witherspoon was basically a sturdy, competent sparring partner. Um, And, you know, we've seen some cruiserweights of comparable ability and accomplishment to Usyk have real success at heavyweight. I'm thinking specifically of of Evander Holyfield and James Toney. Toney did well against smaller 220 pound or so heavyweights like John Ruiz and Holyfield himself, but we never saw him against a good giant heavyweight like right. Lennox Lewis or one of the Klitschko's. Uh, Holyfield was an all time great heavyweight, of course, but he did go one and two against Riddick Bowe and 0 one and one against Lennox Lewis. I think a great cruiserweight can beat a great 250-pound super heavyweight, uh, but history suggests uh, it's – I can't believe uh, I'm going to use this phrase, but it's a tall task. Sorry. Uh, (laughs) So uh, I don't know yet about Usyk, and uh, nobody knows yet uh, about Usyk, and anyone who says he'd kick Deontay Wilder's ass or he'd get destroyed by Wilder is full of crap. Um, Yeah. I would make him an underdog against Wilder, Fury, maybe close to even against Ruiz, but I'm really just guessing based on the history of other cruiserweights trying this. I do think his footwork and speed will give almost anyone in the division trouble, even if they eventually drill him and knock him out. Um, But here's a side topic about a cruiserweight invading the heavyweight division. Uh, I think I mentioned this in passing on the podcast a few weeks ago, but I'll I'll expound a bit now. What are we supposed to do with Usyk pound for pound? Um, Let's come from the baseline perspective where we're in agreement that he was, as a cruiserweight champ, a top 10 guy, maybe Mm -hmm. a top five pound for pound. Mm -hmm. But now he's a heavyweight. I just listed two fighters in that division, and there are maybe more, who I'd make him an underdog against. And they're not on my pound-for-pound list. So he's now judged as a heavyweight, and until he proves he can beat the other top heavyweights, I can't put him in my top 10 pound-for-pound, even if at 215 pounds, he's 
better on a per pound basis than say Tyson Fury at 255, but that's not how it works. You know, people didn't have Chris Bird on their pound for pound list because he was giving away 40 pounds against his best opponents and beating them. They rated Lennox Lewis higher than Chris Bird pound for pound. So it's complicated. Uh, But I think people who make pound for pound lists need to seriously consider removing Usyk at this point. Uh, that's that's certainly what I'm doing. I'm taking him out of my top 10 uh, until he proves to me he's still pound for pound quality within this division. So it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you touched on it there. It's the question of whether it's literally pound for pound right. or weight class for weight class. Like if he's fighting guys who are 40 pounds heavier than him, um, yeah, obviously it wouldn't happen. And, and the, you know, it's it's... It's, you know, if a featherweight's going up and fighting a middleweight, you're like, holy crap. Um, uh, but, yeah. But but the Chris Bird analogy is the good one. I, I That started to pop into my head as you were talking about it. Um, it's probably the most analogous, isn't it, mm-hmm. in recent times, actually? Because Chris was really a middleweight who, who just bulked himself up to heavyweight because that's where the money was. Right. So, no, it is quite interesting. Um, I, I, I guess... You're, you're glad I, you don't make pound for pound lists anymore, aren't I you? I was about to say that, actually. I was about <laughs> to say that. And, and then the other thought is, if I were, would I give him a pass and then see what happens if he fights? Like, keep him there for now? You could. And, yeah. and see what happens if when he starts fighting the big guys? I don't know. Yeah. I, I could see a case for wanting to sort of be patient and see, learn more about how good he is as a heavyweight uh, before doing anything, but I'm sort of going to the default position that he is not a top heavyweight yet, uh, at least you know not a top two or three heavyweight yet, and I, if I don't have Deontay Wilder and Tyson Fury and Andy Ruiz on my pound-for-pound pound list, that I feel like I shouldn't have Usyk on it either now that he is officially a heavyweight. But Quick aside, is mm-hmm. there a circumstance in which you would have a heavyweight on your pound-for-pound pound list? Like, oh, it's yes. not, like you, you don't exclude heavyweights. You're not some one of the... Right. Some people do, right? Right. You just exclude heavyweights. To make our second uh, Larry Merchant reference of the podcast, that was that was his rule, uh, that, that he did not consider heavyweights eligible for pound-for-pound. Mm. Pound. But no, that is, that is not my rule. Uh, but it is rare that I do end up putting a heavyweight on. I can't rem- I guess Vladimir Klitschko at some point during his dominant reign, uh, he never rose like into my top three or four or anything, but he was in mm. my top ten at, at some point there before getting dethroned. It was probably mm. the last heavyweight I had on my pound-for-pound pound list. Okay. Mm. Um, one thing that particularly struck me during this fight with Chaz Witherspoon was how the crowd was reacting to Usyk. Uh, yeah. It seems like he's starting to cross over into a bit of the 2013-era Triple G-like popularity, the the goofy foreign guy who can really fight. Uh, And and he busted out his catchphrase, I'm very feel, uh, (laughs) seemingly scripted uh, after the fight, uh, which was a move right out of the Golovkin playbook. Uh, It's certainly been a slower burn than it was with Golovkin, where he became a sensation, maybe not overnight, but at least within just a couple of fights in the U.S., are you sensing the same thing? Uh, you know, I'm I'm very feel about uh, Usyk's profile and popularity <laughs> taking off. Are you also very feel very about feel. that? Yeah, um, yeah, and I, and I guess the slower burn, which I think you're right about, is due to the you know the different styles. Like Golovkin was just as, as soon as we saw him, he was breaking guys in half and, and, and knocking them out almost like a cartoon character. Whereas Usyk's approach is it's much steadier, you know, in, in a way, if you wish, the slower burn outside the ring is sort of reflects the slower burn approach inside the ring. Um, but I think I do, I do sense it as well. Uh, but I, 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 you have to figure, you sort of touch on this, that a very large part of what is happening is that people are noticing and responding to his personality. Um, you know, in his early days of fighting on HBO, it took very little time to pick up on it. It was the way he responded in interviews and more specifically the way he acted when the camera stopped. Um, and, and he stopped thinking that he had to be professional. Uh, the way he would ham it up for photographs. Ed Mulholland loved the guy. Um, uh, he, he just knows. It, it's, yeah, he... he um, you know, he's got some scripted spots, but that's him, right? But also the other stuff you see, like the, the little meme of popping up behind Bob Arum when, right. when Arum was in the ring. Just all that kind of stuff, the little looks that he gives. I mean, even his fighter photo on the broadcast. Um, did you see that? His headshot where he's got that weird music right. yep. grin on. Like, he just, it's just, 
I think people are responding to that to some extent. There's this fundamentally liberating oddness about the guy. And um, he's a good-humored guy. Um, I, <laughs> I once even let slip to, to Egis Klimas while I was just after I'd done an interview with Usyk that um, Usyk spelt differently. But as I have explained on a previous podcast is an Anupia Eskimo word for walrus penis bone. Right. And so, and, and I said, that, well, that was my reaction a lot because I lived in Alaska for many years and I know what Anusik is. And every time I heard it, I'd be like, <laughs> and I actually even let it slip. And, and, and I just goes, what? And I told him, and he says it in Russian to, to Alexander. And I thought, oh, I'm dead now. That's it. <laughs> right. It is. Oh, who wants to know that their name is walrus penis bone? But he thought it was hilarious. Um, so he, my God. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I think so. I think that personality that that, you know, it definitely comes across. And, and I think, you know, sort of the hardcore fans started to, to pick up on that. And there's, you know, he's very memeable uh, and, and that's sort of driven from that. Plus, you know, um, you know, his he, add to the fact while, while he remains technically sound, his performances have, have generally increasingly come with like conclusive and, and sometimes concussive endings. So he, he's, he's he's an exciting guy to watch. Um you know, and the fact that he's got the, as we said, the stones to move up to heavyweight and and take on these big guys, um, that's creating some excitement. But I did also notice as well that you know when he was doing that in-ring interview with Chris Mannix, that there were a lot of cheers from the crowd when he finished his answers in Russian. Yes. Um. Bef- um so. You know, there may be like a just a really big Ukrainian contingent of fight fans um, who's responding to him and Lomachenko and Vojtek and and the way that they're really elevating Ukrainian boxing. So I don't know. Uh, in the co-feature on the Usyk with a spoon card, um, uh, a fight we will surely spend less time talking about. Uh, light heavyweight titleist Dmitry Bivol remained unbeaten by winning a unanimous decision over Lenin Castillo by scores of 120-107 and 119-108 twice, uh, made extra wide by a knockdown in the sixth round. Um, this is now four straight distance fights since his stoppage of Sullivan Barrera. And over that course of time, when we've discussed him, you and I, on previous podcasts, I've been the one defending him a bit, right? I've, you know, I, we talked about Usyk. There was, I think a couple of times I, I drew parallels to Usyk, sort of saying, oh, you know, Alexander went through a patch of technically sound but uninspiring wins before really elevating himself a level. And and then there was always an excuse I could find. Oh, Isaac Chalember is awkward. No one looks good against him. Jean Pascal is tougher than we thought. Who knew at this stage of his career? But then... After a while, I've got to be, I've been a big Dimitri Bivol uh, uh, defender, but after a while, you have to confess that he's barely lost even a minute of his last several fights, but he is being taken the distance now by the likes of Joe Smith and now Lennon Castillo. And Castillo barely appeared to even be very interested in doing anything except being in there. Um, You know, even when Bivol knocked him down, and it was a good knockdown, right? Mm -hmm. The legs were all over the place. It was like... And Castillo's mind was obviously fine, and his body just wasn't functioning. But even then, Castillo just seemed to find it all rather amusing. He was laughing as he went down, for heaven's sake. Um, so look, there's much about Bivol to like. He's a very nice personality, apart from anything else. Uh, he's technically very sound. He throws very nice combinations. His punches are straight. He's always balanced. But I guess I'm finally coming around to the view that the Bivol we've seen since Barrera isn't the exception. It's probably the rule. I don't think there's a late career renaissance, exciting Dimitri Bivol ready to break out. Um, That's who he is. He's technically good. Not as powerful as we might have thought he was going to be. Not exactly must-see television. I feel that that's a place where you've been for a while, and I've tried to talk you out of it. Um, Have you been... Is that fair? And have you been drained of your enthusiasm such as it was for Dimitri Bivol at this point? Yeah, just about. Um, And yeah, I mean, I... I I tried to remain optimistic for as long as I could. And and I'm not going to say I'm 100% done with the guy, but... Uh, look, if you're going to call out the Canelo Kovalev winner or the right. Kvostik Beterbiev winner, if you want those opportunities, then act like it, fight like it, create some yeah. demand. Uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with dominating over 12 rounds, drama free from time to time, but it's more palatable when you're either doing so against really strong opposition, uh, or you're doing so while showing skills rarely seen the way like a Vasily Lomachenko does. Uh, right. He can dominate a guy and not get, although he usually does get the stoppage, but he can go the distance and not get the stoppage. And at least you're seeing something special and you know, yeah. it. 
If yeah. you're just in there being technically sound and dominant in a manner that we've seen a thousand times before, and you're doing so against Lennon Castillo, who is not yeah. really a threat to you. I'm sorry, you you get no points for that. Um, and it was really telling that Bivol's corner was advising him before round 12, don't risk it. Don't lose your concentration. Mm. Makes me think maybe it's a cultural thing, sort mm. of like when Vitaly Klitschko surrendered against Chris Bird and, and mm. later said, well, that's sort of, I was brought up believing that, that it was okay to save yourself in that situation. I learned that the American public would not stand for that. And, and I learned from it and I changed uh, that maybe this is sort of a thing where the, the rules and objectives are different mm. in their boxing culture. Perhaps. If so, they heard the booze. Um, maybe this is their chance to learn. Boxing isn't just dictated by wins and losses. How you win helps determine your value. So I'm holding out maybe just the tiniest bit of hope that Bivol could start adjusting his mentality after hearing those boos. Maybe. Um, but until he does, as long as he keeps fighting with this approach, uh, then yeah, I, I've just about lost interest, despite the fact that he's obviously a, a talented fighter. Yeah, uh, to, to bring in a third Larry Merchant reference, I think I'm correct in saying that one of the things that Larry, one of the great descriptions Larry would always say for boxing is the is the sport of the what have you done for me lately? Mm-hmm. And yeah, not a lot. <laughs> no, in this case, not uh, much at all. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he's a very, very good fighter. He's, and that's fine. But, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean he's going to get the big paydays. Yeah. So that's about it for major fights that took place this weekend. But I'll run down a few other results here. And we have to mention a possibly tragic one on the Usyk Witherspoon undercard. 154-pounder Patrick Day was stopped in round 10 by Charles Conwell, a violent knockout. Day went down hard and was rushed to the hospital where he had emergency brain surgery and is now in a coma. We'll continue to follow that story and we'll hope to hear some good news in the days ahead. Uh, Not a whole lot more we can say about that situation at this time. Uh, The other results of the weekend, we had Josh Warrington stopping Sofian Takuch in two rounds, TJ Doheny with a KO6 over Jesus Martinez. Chad Dawson is still fighting (laughs) and still winning. He took an eight-round unanimous decision over Denis Grachev. And listeners will recall when we interviewed Andy Lee recently, he told us he was working with a promising prospect named Patty Donovan. Well, Donovan made his pro debut this Friday, scoring a KO1 over Arturo Lopez in Belfast. So congrats to Patty and to Andy for getting that first win under their belts. Kieran, anything you'd like to comment on among those results? You know, all of a sudden, our buddy Andy seems to be quietly making a go of this training gig. He's uh, he's also taken over uh, training duties for Jason Quigley. Um, ah. So it'll be uh, interesting to see how he fares. I'll bet Andy Lee turns out to be a pretty good trainer. Now, you know, not only because he learned at the feet of Manny Stewart, but he's just one of those guys. He's, he's, he's le- very level-headed. And he's one of those guys who is good enough to know what was needed but also not so good that he didn't have to spend time figuring out what to do if you know what i mean right he wasn't so preternaturally talented that he's going to be one of these guys who can't explain to people how to make adjustments so right plus you know he's never gonna have a teddy atlas freak out or look at me a thon in the corner so um so yeah i'm i'm quite i mean obviously we like andy but uh and and i hope he makes a good good go of it but i yeah, I'm curious also from a professional point of view to see how he does as a, as a trainer. Um, that's for the other things you mentioned. Look, the only really important news there, with no disrespect intended at all to anybody else uh, and the other fighters, uh, is, is Patrick Day. Uh, that was a nasty knockout, as he said, at the end of a shellacking. Uh, but fortunately, uh, the medical officials responded swiftly, like we're in the ring fast, treating him rapidly, got him in an ambulance, got him to hospital. Um, so hopefully that makes a difference and we certainly wish him all the very best. Yep. All right. So that's uh, a look at all of this past weekend's fights. And, uh, we didn't have any evenly matched championship level fights this past weekend. We sure are getting one next weekend, uh, this Friday night at the Leacora Center on the campus of Temple University in my hometown of Philadelphia. With ESPN televising, it's a meeting of unbeaten light heavyweights from countries that you're typically more likely to hear about on MSNBC than ESPN. <laughs> uh, Ukraine's Oleksandr Gvozdik, 17-0 with 14 knockouts. Defending the lineal light heavyweight championship he won for Madonna Stevenson against Artur Beterbiev of Russia, 14-0, 14 knockouts, who also brings an alphabet belt to the dance. They're both former Olympians, and they fought each other once in the amateurs with Beterbiev winning. However, 
it is Gvozdek, who is the slight betting favorite. One sportsbook I checked has Gvozdek at minus 125, while Better Beav is even money to win. Kieran, do those odds sound about right to you? Yeah, I think that seems about right. Look, they're about the same age. They've got about the same number of pro fights, as you mentioned. Um, but Vojtek has fought the higher level of competition. He's probably the better all-round boxer. And, and I guess that's really the fundamental factor, really, and the, and the big question. You know, So, you know, you look at both those guys' records, and you, you just mentioned them. You know, the Vojtek has 14 KOs and 17 wins. He stopped 10 of his last 11, um, but better be have has stopped everyone. And it's not just the results. It, it's the manner of the outings, that's the, the, their styles that, that's really different, and it's going to be the intrigue here. You know, Vojtek's more of a straight-up boxer. He boxes behind a jab. He sets up his power punches, shows some pretty good hand speed and angles, and, and sort of just generally breaks opponents down. Whereas better be up. He's like, he's a Hulk smash guy, right? Like, he's on you. He's suffocating you. He, he's, he's not one-dimensional in any means, but his first instinct is to be that almost Golovkin-esque sort of right-on-you just not giving you a chance to breathe, firing punches at you uh, in close, looking to cause damage with almost every single one of those punches. Um, and it's the clash of those styles that's going to be intriguing. And, and because each has those very different strengths, and it's hard to say what might prevail, but generally speaking, you kind of tend to favor the guy who's got good power but is also a better boxer. Uh, I think that probably explains those close odds there. Okay. Um, we interviewed Vojtek on Radio Row for the HBO podcast a couple of years ago, and I've interviewed him on camera once or twice um, in those old HBO News updates days. But he won't have to do a lot of the talking in the build-up to this fight. And that's because his trainer is indeed the aforementioned Teddy Atlas, a longtime ESPN employee, a member of the International Boxing Hall of Fame, and someone who is not shy about putting himself front and center. Um I was a bit surprised when I found out that those guys had, had gotten together. Uh, what's your read on that relationship and whether Teddy is a positive or a negative or a neutral influence in the corner? Well, I mean, I guess uh, the end result is not written yet. Um, right. I think that the more you work together, the more you connect, the better you can be as a team. So maybe this pairing is going to be very strong on Saturday night. But from what I've seen so far, I don't think Teddy is a great fit for Gvozdik. Uh, mm. and, and I said some of this after this fight with Stevenson where he won the title, but I'll, I'll repeat it, that Gvozdik was struggling in that fight. Um, it was pretty close. You could see him thinking in the ring like Teddy's instructions were in his head, it seemed to me, mm. and he wasn't really executing. And then finally, in the last couple of rounds before he scored the knockout, it looked to me like Gvozdik just said, I, I remember him getting a, a little stunned by a punch from Stevenson. Mm -hmm. And after that, he just seemed to say, screw it. I'm just going to fight. I'm going to get aggressive and work on instinct and th stop thinking so much. And he got the knockout. Yeah. Um, but, you know, th this is kind of what I've seen from Gvozdik from the start, that he has good skills, but he tends to think in the ring. He's not the most instinctive guy. And uh, and, and that's one area where I think better be of may have an edge. Uh, mm. So speaking of who has the edge, uh, we don't often do this with non-Showtime fights, but I'm curious, who, who's your pick here? Uh, and don't worry, it, it won't count in our competition. Uh, you still have me right where you want me, six points Absolutely. ahead of you. <laughs> um, but I'm just wondering uh, which way you're leaning on this one. So, you know, from the beginning when it was announced, while I was always salivating over it, I, I guess my initial assumption without sitting down and thinking about it was that if it wasn't exactly his fight to lose, then it's certainly one in which Vozdek would be favored and one in which I would probably pick Vozdek um, because of what I just mentioned, you know, the fact that I think he has the better all-round boxing skills. Um, and even though I was initially very high on Berbiev when he, when he first was sort of making an impression, um, he sort of ran out of steam a bit his career because of injuries and other interruptions. He only had about four fights in three years, and it felt like that, you know, momentum had been interrupted. But... The more I think about it, and this is somewhat related to what you're talking about, about Vojtek being a guy who thinks a bit too much, um, I kind of have a sneaky suspicion that Berbiev just might be all wrong for Vojtek, might just be the kind of guy who who takes him out of his comfort zone, who really makes life difficult for him. Uh, you you do not want to be taking time to think about what you're doing when you've got a guy like Berbiev all over you. Mm -hmm. um, he does, he is going to have to like fight on that instinct combined with, you know, the knowledge that he already has without like actively going through the scenarios in his head about what to throw. Um, and honestly, I don't even know if this is a hot take. I'm actually, I was thinking about this. 
I'm not sure the last time Teddy Atlas improved a fighter. Yeah. And, and I don't know that that's necessarily a knock on Teddy, just that when you're this trainer for, when you're a trainer for hire type, right. it's a bit difficult because you often come in with guys who are already pretty set. Um, and I, don't, I can't think of the last time. I literally cannot think of the last time. Um, so I can see a scenario in which actually Vajdik proves to be entirely in a different class and, and could really impress and dominate and show Better Biev up for being quite one-dimensional. But I'm going to pick Better Biev. I, I think he gets through some hairy moments because Vajdik is really good. Maybe he even goes down, but I just have a feeling that I could see this situation where he's just relentless and he keeps coming and Vajdik's like, God, it doesn't matter what I throw at him. This guy keeps coming. I mean, Better Biev might even be behind on points when it happens, but I think I might lean towards a late Better Biev stoppage. Well... It's just as well that we're not including this uh, in our picks because it wouldn't have changed a damn thing. Um, oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, Better Be Ever is, is having a strange career. I remember yeah. being at Graziano's in Canastota on Hall of Fame weekend in 2015 and watching on a TV at the bar as Better Be Ever stopped Alexander Johnson, which was two months after he stopped Gabriel Campillo, which was shortly after he'd stopped Tavoris Cloud in two rounds in just his sixth pro fight. And I thought at that point, Better Biev was one of the best up-and-comers in the sport. I was thinking this guy is ready to take on the elite. He's mm-hmm. a beast. That was four years and four months ago. He's only had five fights since yeah. then, and he hasn't faced an A-level guy yet. He's been wasting away, and he's now 34 years old. And undoubtedly, Gvozdik is the more proven professional fighter. But my spidey sense still tells me that, that Better Biev is the more talented fighter. Uh, I think he hits harder. I like his shorter, more compact punches. I expect a really good fight with some real swings of momentum, but I think it'll be Better Biev who breaks through and hurts Gvozdik. Uh Same as you, I'm predicting Better Biev by late stoppage, maybe round 11 or something like that. Mm-hmm. So spinning it forward just a bit, we have Canelo Alvarez invading the light heavyweight division two weeks after this. Do you see the winner of this fight being part of the Canelo sweepstakes? Or, or do you think Canelo is cherry-picking Sergei Kovalev and win or lose, mm. exiting the division? I don't know. Canelo's a calculating fellow. Um, I suspect he's probably plotted out a couple of possible roadmaps for himself. Uh, I always get the feeling that he's looking a step or two ahead. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think he's he's somebody who just reacts um, in terms of his career. He just feels like he has everything very, very together. And I suspect that which of those roadmaps he follows will depend on how things go for him on November 2nd. And indeed, perhaps partly on how things go on Saturday. Um, so styles do make fights, as they say. Um, I rather suspect that win or lose... Uh, on Saturday, whoever wins or loses on Saturday, I rather suspect that he might fancy his chances a bit more against a good all-round boxer puncher like Vojdik than against a heavy-handed puncher like Bedebiev. I mean, I might be wrong, but um, I don't know. I, I don't know that he's got... I think he might be done with middleweight. And my mm-hmm. suspicion... Because it's going to be awfully hard to get back down there after once he's up to 175. And, and um, you know, my suspicion is that he's going to go down to 168 when I lose against Kovalev. But I suspect he's also just going to take a look at where the greatest number of possible enticing opponents are and how he feels he does against Sergei. Like, especially if he beats him, like, okay, I beat him, but how did I feel? Did I feel really strong at 175? Boy, I can take on anybody. Oh, holy cow, I got away with that one. Uh, I probably shouldn't do that again. Um, So... You know, he might think, hey, Kovalev is by far the biggest star at 175. I can do this. It's not that he, he's, he thinks that he's like a wounded gazelle and he's there to be taken. He's like, this is a great, this is a wonderful way to make people forget about the fact that I am not interested in fighting Gennady Golovkin. This is a huge fight. People will love me for this. They might not be quite the same kind of like star value in taking on either a Vojtek or a better BF. He might think, you know what? I'll get a lot. I could fill a stadium. I could fill Wembley Stadium if I take on Callum Smith at 168. Um, and maybe that's part of his rationale. I could go on the road, take my show on the road for a bit. So um, I suspect that's going to be as rational as what's going to get him the most bang for the buck at this point. Um, uh, basically, I've spent several minutes saying I have no idea <laughs> what Canelo is thinking, but that I suspect he, yeah, he's thinking ahead and he's already planning it out. But I would think it's going to be, he's going to make his decision as much on what's a big event as to what's a fight he can win. 
Right. If, if, if when you're going to spend several minutes uh, not necessarily saying anything all that revelatory, at the very least, work in a mention of a uh, whale penis bone, please. Right. But that walrus. that makes a me. Oh, I'm sorry, walrus. walrus, walrus, of course. How? Yes. Lord, uh, <laughs> oh God. Uh, do, uh, do whales have as, penises? I, you would be the guy who would know. Yeah. I mean, as I may have mentioned, in fact, I probably have. Um, so, <laughs> so you're off. You asked for this. So, oh, often, no. like in, in bars in Alaska, often um, uh, usics are used as the beer pools, right, for draft beers. Okay. It's hilarious in Alaskan, but I can't even. Like, I mean, how? Like, you imagine a whale penis bone? I mean, good lord, you'd have to use a <laughs> ladder or something. Anyway, right. Wow. Uh, unfortunately, there are no other noteworthy fights. I mean, sorry for all of those who are taking part in the fights. God bless you all. But there. You know, not especially noteworthy to discuss. The Vojdek Beterbiev co feature is Luis Kalazo. God, he's still fighting against Kritzertilo Abdukarov. And that's probably the second biggest fight of the weekend. Um, so, you know what? Let's move on to the mailbag. Indeed. Let's reach into that mailbag. Uh, we have one uh, tweet here, uh, of course, uh, using the hashtag AskShowPod. That is how you uh, send us your questions on Twitter. This one comes from Alex Crichton, who writes, Do you think the overreaction to close decisions and hyperbole surrounding them influence fans to view the sport as corrupt more so than the decisions themselves? There are more quote-unquote robberies than robberies without the quotes around the word uh so uh that's uh, alex's question what do you think kieran uh i th- i think sometimes it does actually and i um uh and it doesn't help god i'm not trying to beat up on teddy atlas here but it doesn't help <laughs> when you know teddy for example comes on and there were a couple of fights where he just completely overreacted mm-hmm. um and took a controversial or close decision and turned it into a sign of that boxing and, and scream about how boxing is rotten to the core. And, you know, and people who are watching ESPN might pick up on that and think, oh, this guy's like really respected and he's saying boxing's rotten to the core. That must be the reason for this this decision. Um, I, I, I kind of think the whole thing can feed on itself. And I think also that even though it's become part of an ingrained part of the boxing broadcast landscape, I do think that sometimes having, you know, quote unquote, unofficial officials, the dedicated TV scorers can shape that fulmination and outrage, right? Like if, I mean, Harold, God bless his heart, was rarely equivocal when a decision went in a different direction from the way that he saw the fight evolving. And, um, you know, and then you all too often you have promoters happy to immediately go to the dark side to explain why their guy might have lost um i do think it's probably more of an issue with um more casual observers of boxing or fans who don't follow the sport closely or guys who just tune in and see people bloviating on espn than it is among more dedicated or hardcore fans who are generally i think more able to distinguish between bad judging awful decisions controversial decisions and close decisions but um so i think Many who follow boxing, either loosely or casually or indeed closely, or indeed not very much at all, begin with the assumption that boxing is corrupt. And this is neither a controversial nor an inaccurate <laughs> position to take. Right. But, you know, for many, for, the way, for, for many people, the sole way in which they interact with boxing is purely by watching fights, right? They don't talk with managers or fighters or trainers or promoters or commissioners or judges. They don't hear like the dirty little stories about guys getting fights and not getting fights or the advantages they have or disadvantages they have. They just watch fights, sometimes in person, sometimes on TV. Um, and so like their only sort of exposure to controversy is decisions and so they go into it with the assumption that it's corrupt and that's what they see as being perhaps a sign of corruption and somebody on tv goes oh my god this is terrible and you know and they sort of put two and two together a little bit um you know how the biggest star always gets the decision except when he doesn't (laughs) right You know, except when like Oscar De La Hoya doesn't get it against Felix Trinidad or Shane Mosley or Manny Pacquiao doesn't get it against Tim Bradley or or, or Tim Horn. Um, or Jeff, Jeff Horn. Horn. Jeff Horn. Yes. Excuse me. See, I can't even <laughs> remember his name. That how that goes to show about you know. That's all right. I, I called a walrus penis a whale penis. So a Tim yeah, Horn. Uh, Tim Horn is really nothing that's compared outrageous. to that. Outrageous. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but um, but anyway, that so so yes, I think. When the initial reaction on the broadcast or in reports is to stress the this stinks and boxing is awful and did you know Don King is in boxing and he once stomped a guy to death narrative takes hold, then then that sort of takes hold rapidly. But I do think that more seasoned fans get the difference between 
as Alex puts it, quote unquote robberies and robberies mm. and more seasoned fans understand the various nuanced reasons. But uh, yeah, I do think that whole overall narrative about boxing means it's very easy to make that the go-to place when, when a, a, um, a, a decision is controversial. Yeah, my response to his question overlaps with yours in spots, although I have a few thoughts on it that go in slightly different directions. But certainly one thing uh, that you touched on is that let's not let boxing off the hook here, no matter what. Boxing has a lot of crappy decisions uh, and is very much to blame for people viewing the sport as corrupt. So so let's get that out of the way, uh, which which you uh, addressed as well. But... Uh, You know, this does happen that um, people use the word robbery when it doesn't really apply. uh, And that's not a new phenomenon. Uh, Hagler fans still say he was robbed against Mm. Leonard. That's obviously the most famous example of a disputed decision that was by no means a robbery. Um, Mm. I wrote a column back in 2006 uh, with the headline, A Commentator Made Controversy. It was about the Vernon Forrest-Ike Corte fight, uh, which was a a close 10-rounder. I had Forrest winning narrowly. Reasonable people could go the other way. The judges all agreed with me, and the HBO commentators presented it as a fight Corte won convincingly. And to my eyes, they manufactured a quote-unquote robbery when it was, in fact, just a close fight with a few rounds that could have gone either way. Um, You know, you can disagree with the golovkin derevyanchenko decision. It wasn't a robbery. Right. Same with Spence Porter. You can disagree. It wasn't a robbery. Uh, and, and same, by the way, with one result that really did piss me off recently, uh, Akhmadov versus Barrios. Right. Uh, the scorecard stunk. The result, Barrios winning, it wasn't that far off of what you and I both saw, which was a draw. Um Team Akhmadov, by the way, filed a protest of the decision, and the relevant alphabet body just a couple of days ago ordered an immediate rematch. That's fine. That's good. Uh, I still wouldn't call even that fight a robbery. How can I call it a robbery if Akhmadov got knocked down twice and I scored it a draw? Um, So, you know, this is something that happens. Um, It's happened forever. It's probably worse in the social media age and the first take age Mm, and polarized politics age where people are trained to think that you have to have a strong stance on everything. And if someone gives a movie two and a half stars and you gave it three stars, well, their review is an affront and an outrage and everything (laughs) in the world is horrible, uh, which it is. But everything is. Yes. But, you know, pick your spots, people. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, exactly. Um, All right, that will almost do it for this week's podcast. Uh, Before we go, one more sad piece of news. Uh, Eloy Perez, uh, former super featherweight contender, uh, reportedly died this weekend at the age of just 32. Um, Perez opened up his career with a record of 23-0-2, then in 2012 got smashed by an Adrian Bronner who was really just hitting his peak as a fighter. Uh, Afterwards, Perez tested positive for cocaine, was promptly dropped by his management team. I tell you, the circumstances behind all of that are are just quite bleak. Um, And he didn't fight again. Uh, He would occasionally resurface, perhaps to call old acquaintances and touch base, uh, sometimes, frankly, to ask for money. Uh, But then this past weekend, he disappeared. Uh, His family put out an APB, and he was tragically found dead in Tijuana, Mexico. The details remain sketchy. But uh, deepest sympathies to his family and friends. Mm. Uh, boxing, man, I tell you. Yeah. Um, we had hinted last week that we might have a guest on this week's pod. Uh, that didn't happen, as you may have noticed. Uh, but the guest we had in mind remains a possibility for next week, as indeed there's another guest. There may be one. There may be the other. There may be both. There may be neither. Who knows? <laughs> so many possibilities. Either way, we'll be here. Uh, and we will have our reflections on the Wojtek Berbiev showdown and a preview of the Showtime card headlined by Eriksson Lubin versus Nathaniel Gallimore, as well as the mouth-watering Regis Progray Josh Taylor card from London. Until then, thanks for listening.